0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Betty Saar. There are two places in the United States to see Saar's work right now. First, the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art is showing Betty Saar Still Tickin', a survey of nearly 55 years of Saar's work. The exhibition, curated by Roel Arkestein of the De Dominan in the Netherlands, will be on view through May 1st. Saar's landmark 1969 Black Girl's Window is on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, in a permanent collection installation titled, Take an Object. It will be up through February 28th. Saar's work has been important to or has informed generations of artists. Betty Saar has referred to slave ships in her work for decades, references that are now commonplace in, say, Willie Cole's work. Saar went looking for materials on the streets of Watts in the 1960s, a practice that informed Mark Bradford. Carrie James Marshall started painting black skin as a flat monochrome in the early 1980s, over a decade after Saar did, in what are now some of her best-known works. In the 1970s, Saar made lots of works that engaged in ridiculed racial stereotypes, precursors to work Carrie Mae Weems made in the 1980s and 90s. And Larry Pittman seems to have picked up on the way Saar used loaded cultural symbols and adjusted their meaning by including them in her work. David Hammons is typically thought of as the originator of hand and body prints in African-American art, But as we'll soon hear, Saar was making them, too, at the same time and in the same city as Hammond's was. In short, I can't think of an American artist whose work and influence has outpaced institutional attention. She's received more than Betty Saar. Her last solo exhibition in a New York museum was at the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1975. Saar's most recent museum shows in Los Angeles have been at the California African American Museum, which showed Cage which traveled there from New York's Michael Rosenfeld Gallery in 2011, and Ritual and Remembrance in 1997. Betty Saar for the full hour, after the break. Often referred to as America's jewel box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. France's son King, Louis XIV decorated his palaces with glittering tapestries, handwoven by renowned artists. This collection was the finest the world had ever seen, using gold and silver-wrapped thread to proclaim the king's magnificence. Woven gold, Tapestries of Louis XIV, on view at the Getty, features rare loans from the French state and evokes the brilliance of the Sun King's court. Visit in person or online to discover these larger-than-life tapestries and how they were made. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. And we're back. Betty Saar, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Let's start way back when, in the 1950s. You got your degree from UCLA in design and worked as a designer in the early 1950s. In fact, you opened up a business with a. I love this. You opened up a business with a friend named Curtis Tan, and you called the business
1: Brown and Tan. (laughs) (laughs) His name is Tan. My maiden name is Brown. So we figured that was pretty catchy.
0: It's still pretty catchy. Fifty years, sixty years later, it's still pretty catchy. So you had an interest in art and in making art all along, but design meant a way to make a living, of course. So what did you take from design that was useful when you stopped making design and started making art?
1: Well, just a basic mental attitude about placement, about color, about pattern, just the basics of design just came in really handy when I switched to, to a and collage and installation. It just it's very natural. It's like I didn't ever have to ask myself, oh, I should this go over three inches more or anything? It just was a very natural feeling for me.
0: Do you still have things you, you, you made back for the design world?
1: No. when I, When I transferred from des, design into fine art, so to speak, just the basics of, of elements and concerns that I had learned as a, a design student, just fit right in without me even having to think about it. In fact, sometimes it seems too much that I would just like to be really free with it. But there's a, a certain regimentation that comes into my work that, well, I, it's what I like to have about my work. I'm talking my current work, that that it feels right, that everything feels right in its place, and that it was just made that way, in spite of all the materials and and other elements that I have put into it.
0: Did you begin to move toward assemblage as a designer or was that a whole different part of, of your life and your, your life making things?
1: Well, I went back to, uh, to school, to California college, uh, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's now called a different name to get a master's degree. And I was working with a designer and then I happened to walk by, a printmaking room. When I was a student at UCLA, they did not teach printmaking at that time. So this was a new experience. So I went in there and checked it out. And then the next semester, I started taking printmaking. And that was my segue from, from design into the fine arts by becoming a printmaker. And then later, with my prints, I started framing them in objects like windows or making them into boxes. And then that was my entrance into assemblage and collage. But before then I saw the work of Joseph Cornell and that's what really pushed me into art making in boxes and windows and just not flat, not two dimensional, but three-dimensional.
0: I think the earliest piece of yours in the current exhibition is from nineteen sixty one. It's a seragraph titled Anticipation. We'll have we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. I'm guessing that's you. That's me. Are the flowers in your right hand hiding your baby bump?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's anticipation, and it was like I was pregnant with my, my third child, and by then I was a printmaker, so I think I finished it up just a few days before she was born. So.
0: Oh, wow. That's <laughs> <a point.
1: laughs> well, I kept working, and, and my instructor said, you, must, you can't have your baby in the studio. You have to get out of here, so. I finished my class, and finished the baby, and the print, so it all worked out fine.
0: So moving moving toward a, a assemblage, which is of course what you're best known for and what you helped make famous. Last year you did a a really nice video with the Museum of Contemporary Art. It's you and George Herm's in, in the video. We'll have a link to it. And you said you thought of yourself as a hunter-gatherer, which is a great phrase, full of full of association. The art historian Jane Carpenter wrote that in the 1960s, you would visit the Watts Towers and pick up bits of things lying around on the ground. Was that the start of hunting and gathering, or were you picking things up even before that?
1: Oh, way before that. Yeah, I was a kid that always liked to go through the trash, especially if you move into a new house, because who knew what kind of treasure there would be there? And always ha- was like a since because I was a kid. Always had a really vivid imagination about seeing things and thinking about things, and I think that was my fascination with the Watts Towers. My maternal paternal grandmother lived in Watts, California, and when we would spend some time in the summer with her, we would walk down to the city and... On the just walk down the railroad tracks and pass where Simon Rodilla was building the Watts Towers. This would be in the 30s. And we were always, always curious about that. And my grandmother says, "Oh, he's just a guy making something." And then I would beg my father to take us by there so we could see it. And but it wasn't until I was an adult and had a chance to to go by there that I could really examine what he'd really done. And by that time, of course, he had moved on to other places and other things. And even now when I go there, I look at the wall and maybe there's some broken pottery plates. Sometimes it's just the, the wet cement and he has to put something in the space so he'll take a tool and make an imprint in it. And the one I find the most amusing is like a corn cob. He had a piece of space and with wet cement, so he just put the corn cob in there. And I just love that kind of freedom of, like, anything can go to make this piece, which developed my attitude about you can make art out of anything.
0: He, of course, was Simon Rodia, who made made Watts Towers. So are there little bits of things you picked up around Watts Towers in, in your own work?
1: Well, there's not very much that you could pick up. And besides, by that time, I was, like, belong to the Los Angeles uh, Parks and Recreation Department. And so I... It wasn't too much. You could. It wasn't anything from his construction that was there, unless maybe I found a, a rusty nail or something like that. But as a kid, and even now, I started picking it up and picking up whatever things I would find. When I travel, I find things. I like to find things, uh, maybe like a package of cigarettes or pieces of paper because I recycle them into collages. But I became a hunter and gatherer a long, long time ago.
0: There's uh, one of your collages called A Version of Survival from 1983, includes a picture of Watts Towers as, as part of your, your piece. How does, how does Watts Towers figure in that work? Why, why is it important for it to be there?
1: I think this is a piece where I had the title before I made the piece. And then it's made of, um, composed of like three lacquer trays or top, tops of boxes. The tray is the platform of it, and then there's like a, a pipe, half of a pipe container or some shape, and it has a black baby standing on a, a cabbage thing, and that, was for me, suggested the piccanini that was found under the cabbage leaf when she sat in Uncle Tom's cabin. After she came to him, she said, I was just under, born under a cabbage leaf. So that, see, it's, it's, it's interesting that now that I can put it together and sort of invent my story of what I was doing, but I didn't, except I was aware of Uncle Tom's Cabin and the Piccadini under the, the cabbage leaf. And then the watch Towers, the photograph that I had taken, and I wanted to include that because I think that was important to my development as an artist and as an artist of mixed media. And so those two just came together and it was about i guess my own personal development of, of becoming an artist working with sound objects
0: it's a it's a really great piece we'll have an image of it on the website so some sometime i guess in the late 1960s you started using you started making collages out of both windows and doors which which has been enormously influential on 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 on, on contemporary art in the years since why windows and why doors and is there a different reason for using windows and doors or is it kind of all part of one thing
1: i think i was on vacation somewhere up the coast and where i was staying with a friend and her family and wandering around the yard they had these stacks of windows maybe two or three windows and they were so beautiful i Oh, it would be fun to frame my prints into a window, because it's like a a frame, only it's a different shape, and multiple panes or places to exhibit. So that's how it started, like in 1966 it was. I started doing the the windows as a way of framing my prints. There's a print called House of Tarot, which is about the tarot cards, and they're laid out, and and it also suggests like a window. So it seemed like a natural progression to, do, to frame the prints. So I started framing prints and drawings into the windows and then later putting things on the frames and then they they developed into assemblages.
0: And then when did doors come in?
1: Not that many doors. Screen Not door mostly. Many, no. Yeah. And a long narrow screen door. I had another door but it was just too heavy to manage. So, But mostly the windows and then a few narrow doors.
0: And there are a couple. I don't know what to call them. I mean, I, I'm thinking of a piece such as self-window with reflection, which has three window panes. Maybe it's the top of a window. It's kind of hard to tell. But but you know, your windows are often not just a single pane of glass. They are.
1: No, I prefer the ones with the, with, the, with the multiple panes in them, because each one is like a a frame. Yeah. So this is like a a top part of a, of a vintage window. The part that you lift, slide up, and then there's another part. There's like a two—it's a two-part window. Yeah. Yeah, and so I used it to frame. One is a phrenology chart, another is a drawing of my face, and then another is like a silhouette of my face with the shade that lifts up.
0: Yeah, this is a really interesting piece. We're talking about self-window with reflection, and we'll have an image of it too. The drawing of you on your right is completely black except for with, with no tonal difference except for your eyes and your mouth.
1: Well, I think what it doesn't show in, in the photograph, but it's a painted my, like my silhouette is painted on a mirror. Yes, it's painted on a mirror, and that's just my silhouette. so the mirror shows through the eyes and and the mouth.
0: Right. So as you look as a viewer looks at it from the right place, of course, the viewer's eyes could could really be where your eyes are. Was that part of the idea?
1: I think so, because the paint itself, is just about the shape of a head, and I think that's life-size in the drawing, yes.
0: So what is the relationship in that work of the middle figure, the the drawn, pale, beige panel?
1: Well, it's an actual drawing, a pencil drawing on paper, so it's much lighter.
0: So there's this there's this very light image in the middle and this very dark image on the right. Is that a reference to your being multiracial or something else entirely?
1: No, it's not that deep. It's it's just a, a, another way of drawing the same thing. Or what? Or maybe it's because the pencil drawing is more lifelike and I was really drawing it, and the other is like a shadow. So it's like the persona and the shadow, and the dark one is a shadow.
0: At about the same time you made Self Window with Reflection, you made probably your most famous work, 1969's Black Girl's Window, which has been in MoMA's collection now for, for a couple of years. So I was asking you about the eyes in Self Window with Reflection. The eyes in Black Girl's Window are, well, what, what, tell me about the eyes in Black Girl's Window.
1: <laughs> well, there, it's an eye that you can buy, purchase, and it, it's like a photograph, it's like a, I'm going to not remember the name of it, where you it, it shows dimension. And so, like, you t- slightly tilt it, and the eye closes, and then the eye opens. And so that's what that is. So it has eyes sort of halfway open when the camera took a photograph of it. But if you look at it and you move around, the eyes sort of blink.
0: Because uh, in, in in Black Girl's Window, there's one eye that that is very much there. You know, you see an eye, and, and the other eye, I, you can't quite make out what it is. What's going on in the other eye there? <laughs> well, I think this is
1: just the way the camera took the picture. Ah. Because when, when, when you move it, or when you move yourself, it, it opens and shuts, and opens and shuts. But the camera just took a picture when it was like half open. In
0: some ways, Black Girl's Window is almost kind of a Rosetta Stone of of things you would do over the next few years. Is there a particular story behind when and where and how and why you made this piece?
1: Well, this piece came before shelf windows, I right? Evidently, I might have been doing a, a series of, of shelf portraits. But this one is about my life. It's like the bottom part is like I'm standing in front of the window with my palms pressed against the glass and like the, wind, the curtains of the room behind me. Up above is the the sky chart with the sun in the center. It's like phases of the moon uh, to uh, to suggest a passing of time, of months, days, months, years. And on the hands are the astrological signs of the planets and so forth. So it's like I'm standing, I guess, exposing my future, uh, my destiny according to astrology. And, And the panels up above are small panes. And they suggest maybe things in my life. Up above is about how the moon and the stars will tell your destiny by astrology. The couple dancing in the corner to suggest my early family, my, my parents dancing to Valentine, I think, from the 1930s. And then on the other side is a phrenology chart with all the panels of a hand of telling my destiny and fate by phrenology. Below that is is an eagle with love on a shield, and the center is a...
0: A daguerreotype, A a daguerreotype,
1: yeah, of an unknown person who was white, so that symbolizes my mixed heritage. And on the far left, looking down at it, is a line holding the sun, and that's to symbolize my astrological sign, which is Leo.
0: It's almost, in some ways... A self-portrait that references your future self as much as your past self then correct or your current self correct which was part of the idea I yes
1: guess. and in the center I have death
0: L- literally a skeleton yeah,
1: yeah you're literally a skeleton too because death has sort of changed a lot of uh, with my family and how I how I came about you know my father died when I was like five or six years old that I guess I was also putting it together with information that I wasn't quite aware of, like, so that would be the future. And then, you know, at this point I can see the significance of that paddle being in the center.
0: This piece is a 1969 piece and we were talking or you were mentioning the, the tarot symbols up at the very top, the, the, the moon, the stars. And I think the first time you used tarot symbols in your work was the year before, in 1968. And it includes, uh, it's a work called House of Tarot. It has a a red sun and a yellow moon, two blue stars all on a blue background. Was your interest in kind of, I I think to sort of use your own phrase, kind of hippie religion of Laurel Canyon in the 1960s, is that why you used the tarot imagery or were you interested in them just because they were graphically gripping? Well,
1: they were graphically gripping and also I had been as a child sort of uh, interested in palmistry signs from when uh, there were, it used to be a lot of sort of roving gypsies in Southern California. They would come here. They would make furniture and sell long furniture because it was like uh, an outdoor society at that time. Well, all the time, California usually is, but they would have the signs. They would have conventions. And I was just interested in that palmistry sign. And so I would, at that time, during the 60s, I would investigate and try to find out more about palmistry and phonology and astrology. And, of course, that was also part of the hippie culture, which was in the 60s. And But it was all Eurocentric designs. And there were lots of books about how to make gold and all the strange symbols that were out there, and I was just really interested in that, so I did a lot of my printmaking using those symbols, and House of Tarot is one of them, but there are many of them that use that, but I sort of adapted the phases of the moon with the sun in it as one of my symbols to show passing of time or about uh, ancient times and current times, but I've used that symbol a lot, but it developed during the 60s as a printmaker.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great, both symbol and just a visual. I mean, it just, I mean, it's such a great way in. It, it you know, the, you, you, the, the classic art colors of red, yellow, and blue together. I mean, it works in, uh, in all the ways. You mentioned your family and losing your father when you were young. Your mother, I think, was a Christian Scientist, right?
1: My mother became a Christian Scientist after his death. She was raised, she was raised as Episcopalian. And then when she was married, they belonged to a church called the Independent Church in Los Angeles. But then after his death, she became a Christian scientist. And at that time, I was maybe like... I started going to Christian science Sunday school maybe like when I was eight or so. The things that I took back from that was about how absolute faith can cure and heal anything. And it was sort of important to me. I mean, I, I can't remember anything about Mary Baker Eddy or any of her teachings, but I know just about the feelings of a, of of like having that that faith and uh, and I think that's why later on as as an adult I became interested in unity and Unitarian churches. And but that's where it started. And also just about I I think. That, Maybe later on, as an adult, I went to one of their practitioners. That may not be the correct word that they're called.
0: It is the correct word. Yeah, okay. the, 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 the church members who will pray for you. and yes,
1: yes, yeah. The power of group prayer and so forth. And I still feel that way. I don't like being sick. I like being well. And I just try to do that. I'm more interested in holistic medicine and practices than, than anything else.
0: You know, I noticed that a lot has been written about tarot and and mysticism in your work, and not very much about whether that Christian science background worked its way into your art. Do you think it did?
1: no, it just well it worked its way into my life, and you know as the artist then then maybe maybe so. but I was reading a book a couple of weeks ago about Joseph Cornell, and I found out that he was practicing Christian science
0: he was yeah. That's part of why I (laughs) asked. What?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I just didn't didn't know. I'm glad I read that about him before you asked because (laughs) it sounds like I knew that, but I didn't. But I just attracted to his work and everything. Then later, my mother mother later married a a man who was Methodist, so then we went to Methodist Sunday school, and then my friends went to a Baptist church. So then I became—I didn't become any, any part of that, but I would go with the people that were there. So I've been like Episcopalian, Christian Science, Baptist, Methodist, and now I call myself a Unitarian.
0: As all American as, as I it could possibly get. So. Yeah. But
1: a kind of freedom <laughs> with, with, within myself of I feel like taking the best, the loving part of each one of those religions to form my own philosophy.
0: Well, well, speaking of your family members, in the late 1970s. You made a series of works on handkerchief named after family members. So, for example, one work is called Aunt Hattie, and that references your maternal great aunt, Hattie Parson Keyes, with whom you lived, I think, in Pasadena as a child. Why family members and handkerchiefs? Why did those things go together?
1: Well, my mother's mother died when she was, like, young, very young, like nine years old. So that, that's, like, one of the first things about death. So that that marked her, you know, she had like this, not that she was always sad, but there was this like an element of sadness about her and being her child. I wasn't aware of that, but, but that's something that, that came out. And in this particular time, my great aunt who had been like a mother to her had passed away. She was like 94 years old and this was like 1974 when she passed. She had a trunk where she came from, Kansas City, Missouri. It was filled with old clothes, books, papers, letters, dance cards, and when she was a young woman, gloves and handkerchiefs. And so I co- i just collected all of that stuff because I—I I just felt this is—I don't want to put it in the trash, you know, because I can make art out of it. If you can make art out of it, anything, but then my work turned to like a more feminine approach of using more feminine objects, handkerchiefs, gloves, flowers, cards. And it started us with a series of flat works. And at that time, I think part of it was maybe like grieving for her, her passing. And what, that's one of the reasons we have handkerchiefs, to have tears. So that instead of a piece of paper, I used a handkerchief to do a series of portraits of the women in my family. So it starts out with my my mother's mother, my mother's grandmother, my Aunt Hattie, my mother, and myself. And one of the pictures in this series is called The Lost and it shows uh, a photograph of myself and my father and it's torn in half. So it's about my grief about his passing.
0: There's a large leaf in the middle of the lost. What is the? And there's a butterfly on the leaf. What is the leaf?
1: Uh, the leaf is, I suppose, about each one of them have a leaf in it. It's about nature, about something that's growing, about life, and the butterfly is the symbol, the metaphorist so of the butterfly about life and death, and the, the butterfly flying away, like life flying away. But each one of them have something that's maybe, like the one of my paternal grandmother has a photograph of like members of her church she was Baptist, and it was her picture with that uh the one of my mother i have one of my mother as a child and then i also have one of myself as maybe like a a four-year-old in a little wedding dress Uh, that one is called rainbow babe in the woods i
0: was going to ask about that one so if if all of the handkerchief pieces are references to people in your family, Rainbow Babe in the Woods is a little bit different because um, it, it comes a couple years later, 1979, and and it's you. So why 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 two years later is there a handkerchief with with you on it?
1: Well, that was part of uh, part of the the series about the women in my life, and I counted myself as part of that. And then I I like that photograph, and it's Also, about you see, it has funny little things wiggling around, and I was also interested in making a symbol to suggest energy. So, this really started another phase of handkerchiefs where I use that to they're like salmon from fake flowers, but it but it and then other curved things. But if you've ever seen a Carillion photograph, to see the energy coming out of, I have one of, of my thumb. And has all these colors and moving things that come out from what to symbolize energy. So I was very interested in making a series of works that symbolize energy. And since I, I'm alive, it's about the energy of life.
0: They're, 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 they're really great pieces. We'll have images of, of those on the website as well. My guest is Betty Saar. We'll be right back after a break. The fourth iteration of Greater New York, the renowned series at MoMA PS1 in Queens, closes on March 7th. Featuring over 400 works and occupying the entire building, the exhibition showcases both emerging and established artists living and working in New York City and the points of connection between them while also exploring aspects of the city itself. Don't miss this fantastic exhibition. Get more information and tickets at MoMAPS1.org and plan your visit today. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents... CODA Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 CODA reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by rampant interactive St. Louis-based software designers and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Betty Saar turning back the clock a little bit. So a few minutes ago, we were talking about Black Girl's Window, which came in 1969. And in 1970, you uh, made a trip to Chicago, where you saw, I guess, maybe the biggest exposure you had to that point to African art. What, what did that trip and that experience of African art change for you, if that's the right word?
1: Well, at that time, i was a member, as many artists were in in Southern California, Los Angeles, of the National Art Conference. And it was a group that came out of Chicago, and they had a convention. And some of the artists from Los Angeles went to that. My friend David Hammonds and I, we went on the same plane. He was originally from Chicago, so he sort of knew the time. And then during one of the pauses when we didn't have a talk or anything to go to, David and I went to the Field Museum, which has since become my favorite museum, and at that time, the basement was just filled with non-European art, because it was oceanic art, it was Asian art, it was African art, it was art from New Zealand, from everywhere. So we were just in a wonderland, and it was at the very basement, and lots of things were not really as as well displayed as other things were. And it was just sort of like this, it was so much power to go in there. We were just like holding each other's hands and, whoa, what is this? We've never seen anything like this. All together and not carelessly displayed, but it wasn't as manicured as the Field Museum is now. And so we would just keep wandering from thing to thing, just experiencing the materials, the, the use of feathers, of bones—all these things that we considered magical because it was something that we had never experienced before. I had been to the African art exhibit at the Los Angeles County Museum uh, on school school tours, but nothing like this, where you're just totally surrounded by all this stuff that was made from the power of people trying to express the magic in their life. I guess that's one way of putting it. Like later on, I felt, found out that much ancient oceanic art, uh, the binder was blood. That one one piece that we were really attracted to was a shirt, a simple made shirt, like a piece of fabric folded over. But sewn to that sh- shirt were little balls of hair. So the chief wore that shirt and everyone in his tribe had given a piece of hair and a stone to it. So he was, like, constantly in touch with his people, and we were both really affected by that. For me, it was like just something about the power of of a shirt and the beauty of it, and for David, it was the use of hair. And at that time, David Hammonds was uh, running the studio over a barbershop, And he started making his hair pieces. He would just go down to the barbershop and sweep up all those hair and start making these hair pieces. And for me, I just started thinking about what kinds of materials get together to express that kind of energy, to express that kind of power. So that was a very important trip for us, for both of us. And that was, I guess, 1970.
0: So I had a couple questions I wanted to ask about that experience. And one of them is you know, you were by this point in 1970 of course already making art out of found objects in Los Angeles. On that trip, did you see that African art going back, you know, many hundreds of years for that matter, had been also using found objects? Had had you thought of that before the 1970 trip, or was that was seeing that work at the Field Museum, uh, you know, a, a, a connective moment that you hadn't thought of before that?
1: Well, it was the kind of material, because before in 67, I'd seen the show of Joseph Cornell in Pasadena, California, which was his first California exhibition. Right. And that was a really a beautiful... The Pasadena Art Museum. Yeah, it was really beautiful. So I could, I knew that, but it was all Eurocentric, you know, little boxes, little photographs, little pictures. He did a whole series on birds and owls and things like that. And I, and that was the first thing. Oh, my God, you could put these things in a box and it can be art. But then when I saw the film museum, then the idea of the power of those objects, that each one of those objects was from something different, that was something really important to somebody's life, like the call of a, of a lion that was killed or... The fur of something. They were mostly organic because those are the things that survived. But also, I found it interesting that when Westerners came into Africa, they, like maybe they would have a shell or the casing from a rifle, and that was certainly powerful. And if it was killing people there, and also sunglasses or glass eyeglasses, things that were alien to the organic materials that they used. So that. That impressed me, too, about how something from the outside uh, that expressed power combined with organic materials would make this object that had such a strong feeling that that affected David and I.
0: You know, so this was 1970, and, and this is kind of the beginning of what would later be called the Black Power Movement and the beginning of American Blacks feeling a renewed kinship and connection with the continent of Africa.
1: Right. And I think before then, we didn't even think about it, you know. But during that, during the Black Arts Movement, there were lots of references to Africa. But here we were in this basement. We're like right in the source of where much of that power had come from. Because it used to be that Africa was sort of an embarrassment, to, to black people, you know, it's like, you know, here we are in the United States, we're freed slaves and we would like to move on. But then for us, that just took us right back there. And I think for many people, they became interested in, in African art that it was, it had, it had a contribution to make to our lives and to, and to our country even.
0: Did you become more interested in Africa as a result of what you saw at the Field Museum, whether it was the continent or the art of the continent?
1: Yes, and that and that's one of the reasons that I was interested in going to Haiti,
0: which you did in 1974.
1: Which because that not that it's Africa, but it is a, a country of black people, and also the uh, it's, it's across from from the magic and mysticism that's from Africa. Then it goes to the islands, and Haiti was one of those islands, to the southern part of the United States, to Louisiana, and I was interested in that, prog- that pro- progress and also in what materials they used, and also African art, not African art, but Haitian art was very popular, you know, how, how they, they expressed their feelings about the power of certain materials and their culture and their rituals. So that's when I went to,
0: to Haiti. You know, another element of the kind of Pan-Africa movement and the Black Power movement in the United States was a different relationship to to violence and power. And in the 1970s, a lot of your figures, especially female figures, begin to hold guns or grenades. Are those two things tied, related to each other?
1: Well, it was the first piece that I had made of Liberation of Aunt Jemima because I had found this little placket at a flea market and it was like a mammy and for her apron it was a notepad and she had a broom handle, the broom handle was a pencil. And around that time, you know, if I can find it, Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered, was assassinated. And I just felt so enraged by that, and yet so helpless. And the television was filled with people reacting to that event and how they were treated with hoses and being attacked by dogs and all of that counter-violence that went on. But uh, here I was, a mom with three young kids. I couldn't participate in, in any of that. But at the same time, I felt really compelled to do something about. It. And when I found this placket of a, of a mammy, I said I'm going to make this into a piece of art. I was invited to participate in a show called the Rainbow Sign, which was a community house in Oakland. And this was a time when, when the Panthers were forming and having their seeds. And the curator suggested that we make a piece of art about our hero, because this is a time when black was beautiful and we were all feeling that, of relating and being proud that we were of African descent. So I used this piece and I made the Aunt Jemima. I changed her from a victim to a warrior. And the way I symbolized being a warrior was replacing the pencil handle with a rifle, and then the other hand is a hand grenade. So that's how I suggested that that Aunt Jemima change from being a servant, a victim, and become a warrior for her freedom, for freedom of the black people. It doesn't mean that I'm a person that really believes in guns, but a gun really denotes that. It denotes a, a, a per, the person with the gun has the power.
0: And, you know, the guns and often the hand grenades stay in your work for another 25 years or 20 years.
1: And even now, even now, with last year with all the, the, the young black men, other men being shot down, murdered down, you know, I said, it's not over. It's not over yet. It's, and I did a series using scales talking about the weight of the persistence of racism. That it's still here. It really hasn't changed since those first pieces that I did in in the seventies.
0: I want to I want to get to those works with scales and cages in a little bit because, well, because they're really interesting. But before we we totally lose the thread of being in the Field Museum in 1970. <laughs> you mentioned you were there with David Hammons, which is a a, a well known story and. We we were talking about Black Girls Window earlier and how, you know, your two those two black palms are pushed up against the window, which is a motif that is in your work a lot in the in, in the sixties. Was your use of windows and doors and palms, hands pressed up against them, something that you and David Hammonds talked about or that you remember talking about?
1: Well, he did a door called Black Boys Window.
0: He did at the California African American Museum now.
1: Now we don't. We didn't talk about it. I mean, a lot of people talk about the art that, but we saw each other's work, you know, and and I, and I feel and I know at least for me, that that our feelings about our work changed at at the at our visit of the Field Museum.
0: Although that was the year after. I mean, so his Black Boys Window is is 1969, as is as is your Black Girls Window. Yeah,
1: but we we were unaware of that. That we had ah, both done.
0: Really? <laughs> Do you remember how how you found out?
1: Well, he told me. He said, I have a black boy's... Well, it's not a window because it was a door, I think it was, a big piece. But had, the top part of it was a window.
0: Yeah, the, the, one of those is, for example, the door uh, admissions office from 1969, still in Los Angeles at the California African American Museum. And then that gave way to his body print. So you, you don't remember discussing that you both kind of came upon this interest in this Idea at the same time, or maybe where the idea came from.
1: No, I'm not much of a talker about my work, except for things like this. But I, mean, I mean, with artists, you know, they say, "Oh, how's your work?" I say, oh, good."
0: So did you and, and David Hammons, and you know, I don't know whom else visit each other's studios regularly? And... No,
1: not particularly. But because certainly after that time, I think he moved back to New York. I can't remember the date that he moved. But, you know, because Los Angeles is so spread out, you know, it's just, it's hard to make. I think male artists are more into that, of getting together and talking and working together because like John Otterbridge and John Whittles, who was also past pastor with a group of them, they would get together, they would make art together, they would find materials together. But we all had this, this leaning towards accumulative art, making art out of found objects.
0: You mentioned Haiti earlier and, and, and going to Haiti in 1974. I think it was with money, in part with money, you, you earned from a National Endowment That's for the right. Arts Grant. Yes. What did you get out of going to Haiti?
1: At that time, it you know, it's always been a, a, a country that had a political unrest. But at that time, there were many, many people becoming artists. So I went to art galleries there. I met a few of the artists in their studios and so forth. And I went to the graveyard to see what was there, because that's in some of their paintings. I went to a voodoo ceremony to see what was in that, but of course that was like a commercial one. I made many friends there that that I have now, that live in New York who had also gone there, because it was a very interesting country. And now it's still interesting, and now their art artists are very different because. Maybe like three years ago, they had a show of, of the art currently made in Haiti, and it was using parts of the victims who, of the, the earthquake and a lot of rubbish, a lot of found objects. Their country was sort of flattened. But I've always been interested in that, and in, in the other, in how other people express their feelings about their life, about their politics as artists, and how. It has a different. It has more like a healing thing of a way of expressing what they're really about than just making a painting to put in a gallery or a museum.
0: Are there any of your works in particular that you think owe, owe a big debt to your experience in Haiti? You've been a couple times, of course, to Haiti.
1: I think oh, after I one of the the handkerchief series I did a lot of pieces of uh, pieces meaning art. Using the handkerchief format, and I have one that has that shirt I was telling you about with all the bits of hair, and I have have others about different alternative ways of religion and different cultures. Western mudra, yeah, non, yeah, non non-European countries like of Asia. I have one called mudra. It's in the current show at Scottsdale, so it did have a, a have a uh, an impact on my work. But I'm the kind of person that is, that the brain and the spirit kind of absorbs all this thing, and then I'm doing something, and it comes out, and it's like, oh, yeah, that might have okay. been like when I was in Haiti or when I was at the Field Museum or something.
0: Let's go back to, to kind of the, the Aunt Jemima years and period, if you will. You told Jane Carpenter that you started collecting images that were racist or could be read as derogatory toward blacks in the mid to late 1960s. And I'm not sure a lot of those found their way into your work for a number of years. Do you remember why you started collecting those images?
1: Well, I was I was just looking for things, looking for materials. And then I would find these really insulting kind of images about women and children and men. And so, you know, at that time you could buy paper goods for maybe 50 cents to a dollar or something. Now it's all very collectible and harder to find. So I would just collect them just because they were they were interesting and also photographs too of black people. And then later on I used to, I started to use them in my work. When I started to do the the liberation of Aunt Jemima, then then the move from Aunt Jemima to children to to men. And, you know, I have a really good collection now of those images, but it was just because of something I hadn't really seen a lot of and I wanted to like collect them, and I did.
0: So you held on to some of these, you know, offensive images and objects for years before you used them.
1: Yes. Yes, I did. In fact, after I'd seen the Joseph Cornell show, I think I collected things for about three years before I started putting them into something. I've always been a collector or a junkie, just everything that seemed interesting and my nice, clean studio is now just full of all that stuff. And I start collecting things that I will use in a series maybe like two or three years ahead of me.
0: So that was kind of normal to hold on to things for yeah, a couple of years yeah. before you would decide what to do. Uh-huh. With them. Ah, ah. You know, we were talking about your experience up in Oakland and the rise of the Panthers, the Black Panthers, up, up especially in, in the Oakland area in the early 1970s. Was that pretty much the catalyzing moment at which you decided to start using that racist material, or were there other, I don't know, events, if that's the right word, that got you thinking about finally using all that racist and derogatory stuff you yeah. accumulated? Yeah, oh, that,
1: was, that was my first piece that I did using those objects. It was, you know, that little packet that I had found. And also, it, it I was really hesitant about putting it out out there because I just felt that it might be offensive, but it wasn't. It was really accepted because it was like the victim being transformed into a warrior, and so then I kind of, and I still do that. I do it with some of the scales, some of the cages. It works its way in, but the materials have changed. I guess I really can't. As long as there's racism, I guess I'll keep on doing it.
0: Well, you also in the 1970s, maybe a little later in the 1970s, began making work that engaged with stereotypes, and and I guess I mean more specifically, you started using objects that referred to those stereotypes, such as water, like like as, as as a watermelon and Sambo's banjo, for example. Was was there a leap between? Racist imagery and things that you then use to refer to stereotypes. I mean, for example, on 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 its own, by itself, sitting on a table, a picture of a watermelon isn't offensive, but used in the way you used it, it clearly referenced the stereotype of, of you know, a, a watermelon eating lazy black person. Was there a jump in your Thought process or studio practice that got you from objects that were explicitly racist to constructing stereotypes from objects that you found?
1: Well, I started to use the objects in a code way, like like the watermelon to symbolize like black people loving watermelon, and then maybe a blackbird to symbolize Jim Crow, an image of a slave ship to to symbolize. Africa were shipped to this country on a ship that had them stored as objects in the hole, a picture of a lynching.
0: Lots of pictures of lynching and violent death in your work in the 70s. Yes, yes,
1: yes. And um, with Sambo's banjo, which is an old vintage banjo case, handmade banjo case, it has uh, the gun at the top. It has, and it, the gun crosses a figure, an image of a man playing the badge. So is what makes an X. And I have a black skeleton with a, a rope hanging around his neck. And on the door of that little compartment is a lynching. And then I have a man dangling. And it was like, for me, it's like lynching symbolized entertainment. And I think in that picture of it, there are people all standing around watching this man being lynched. And I just found that so horrific that a lynching would be an entertainment aspect. So I've used that symbol a lot. And now I use the scale. I use the scale to to symbolize the weight of racism combined with other objects like that. But I think the Sambo's banjo is the one that, that is really graphic with it. There's another one. Let me entertain you. There was another one the banjo player in one, in one window, the banjo player over a lynching of two men, and on the other side is the militant, you know, with the gun.
0: So a number of these, basically everything you just described stays in your work for a pretty long time, I mean, 15 or, or 20 years. In In that time, you know, in the 70s or the 80s, were there ever specific events that you felt the need to respond to in your work? So for example, you know, in 1980 when Reagan announces his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, did that, you know, were there things like that that you thought maybe you wanted to make a a piece about or that you wanted to address?
1: The pieces, the person, the piece of Aunt Aunt Jemima's Reversion of Aunt Jemima really started with the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. That was the first event that I really had that anger, that rage, to start producing pieces using the sort of negative aspect of of African-American history. The next one was just within the last three or four years when there seemed to be like every month a young black person was murdered. And it was like... It's still happening. and then then I started using the scales of that. But in between, I did have a period where I didn't like the the idea of anger creating my work, and there were lots of really beautiful things about black people that I wanted to use. So I started using the vintage pieces. I think it might have even started with the handkerchief collages, of using the portrait of of my black my family on a handkerchief. And then I'd use it on a collage or a box. And and then I moved from pieces of paper to, uh, once I got my studio built, and I had places to, to work on other other works. And I've used windows, I've used boxes, I've used handkerchiefs. And then I started thinking about the labor of slaves and black people, and I used washboards. And then I Those used.
0: Those are great pieces in the late 1990s, yeah.
1: A whole series on that, and then trays to symbolize service, how uh, slavery was still over, but black people were still used in the, in the kitchen as cookies.
0: And you often, in those works, or at the same time as you made those works, used photographs of young black men in service uniforms.
1: Yes, yes. Well, that was a one really wonderful photograph. World War One. That was a really and I think on the back of that, that piece, that sculpture is the slave ship. And I think it's like crossing or something like that.
0: Crossings from 2005. That's one of my favorite of the of the recent pieces. While, while we're on crossings, crossings also includes an American flag on on one side. I, I guess why that American flag and Could you talk a little bit about putting the young man in in his army uniform? I I think it's an army uniform. On one side and the slave ship on the back?
1: Well, that's because, uh, like, the title is Crossing. Crossing, his ancestors crossed as slaves, and he crosses back to Europe to fight for his country that made him a slave. That's why it's called Crossing. And it's also because the tattered American flag, like, been in battle and so forth. That's one of my favorites, too. It's a wonderful photograph.
0: And and also the, I mean, uh, yes, absolutely. And, of course, the other key thing with that work is the shape of the object, if you will.
1: It was a strange object that I, that I found. I didn't know what it was, but it's like a tombstone.
0: It is exactly like a tombstone.
1: So it's like a memorial piece for all the unknown black soldiers that, that died overseas.
0: You know, we've mentioned the scales pieces, which are some of your most recent works a couple times. And starting five or six years ago, you also made a lot of works in using cages. And so it, over, over the course of a five or six year period, I guess it's easy for, for me to read those as works that are about incarceration and injustice, especially of, of young black men. Are, are those groups of works happening over, you know, the course of almost a decade now, kind of two halves of a whole about about those two things happening in America?
1: That, it's about that, because I did maybe like, I can't remember how many that I've done, but at least like 10 or 15 of those cages. It took a long time to, to, ca- to collect them. In fact, I just bought two cages yesterday because I can't read this. <laughs> but it's also about other things that hold us captive, like jealousy. Like one piece is called Vanity. About ideas of things that hold us captive, as well as being a captive as a slave. being notions, ideas, prejudice that enslave us as people, as humans. So that it 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 has it, it expanded more than just slaves being in a cage.
0: Does it also address the massive incarceration rate of black men in America now?
1: It what yes. Yes. I think there's one where they're all... A, it's, it's, there were little wooden toys that that they're on a stick and you jiggle it and they're like a dancing darkie. And they're all in tuxedos. So that's in one of the cages. I think that one has keys all on the outside of it. None of them have birds in them. They're not about birds, but it's about...
0: No, they're definitely... Some of them look like bird cages, but they, they do not feel for a second like they are about birds. There, there are two more... Pieces I'd like to ask about before we're done. One of them is, is back from earlier in your career, but uh, was just recently acquired by the Museum of Contemporary Art in LA.
1: Oh, three three.
0: Yeah. You know, I kind of, I, I, could you talk a little bit about the, about out of what that piece came? I mean, it's a piece that references your, your own mixed race heritage but is there any particular reason why in 1972 of all times you were you were thinking about that and wanting to make a work about your own background like that?
1: That piece was also after being at the Field Museum. Oh, of course. Yes, that piece is after about the after being at the Field Museum. So that and also let's see, when did I go to Haiti?
0: 74. So that was a, you went to Haiti after you made Grigri.
1: Yes. But uh, but about my my curiosity about that kind of thing, because I'd been thinking about Haiti before I went there, but but it really came from the field museum and and finding all sorts of objects from places like that. Is
0: that hair at the bottom of that piece that's hanging from the bottom of greegree?:
1: Oh, no, it was like sheep's hair. You know that just hangs down. That because, but that definitely came from inspiration at the uh, at the Field Museum, or, or or maybe hair from a lion, or hair from something else on there. But the the basis of that piece is an old wooden base that held a sewing machine, and then it was was like a little altar or something. So I had the black doll in there with all the magic charms on her. The little door that comes open, it has like snake skin and a little chameleon that I'd found, but when the door comes off, it has little wooden containers that hold organic things like sand and grass and seeds and other organic materials, like components of something to create magic. And gris, of course, it's French for gray, not white magic, not black magic, but magic in between, gris gris.
0: And at the bottom of the work, there is, you mentioned snake skin and what looks like an animal being threatened by the snake?
1: No, it's a a Uh little community. They're just like, they suggest like what's holding behind it, like organic materials that could be used in in creating a potion or casting a spell.
0: Two other things in that piece. One, is that a broken mirror above the figure? Yeah,
1: it's a little round mirror in a case that's cracked. that's broken. Which gives you a lopsided view of what looks into it.
0: So, are you in that in that piece? The 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 textile in the back of the piece is a star field. There is a a out piece of cardboard or wood that is in the shape of a crescent moon. Are you kind of recreating your your Terra world?
1: Well, yeah, like the, the, they will all symbolize the universe and how important the moon is to. Uh, Phases of the moon, the passing of time, but also in when certain events happen, whether it's the full moon or the new moon. And then I think there's one that's a little, it looks yellow in there. It's a little um, resin sun that my daughter Allison, who turned out to be an artist, uh, had made. And then there's maybe a globe in there. I can't always decipher that. Yeah.
0: So the idea was to kind of remake those tarot things only using your materials rather than using actual tarot cards or actual yeah, material from right. tarot material. You know, we 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 talked a few moments ago about your interest in, in women and working and how you made pieces on washerboards for for 15 or 16 years, really. And so maybe the last specific piece I wanted to ask about is a piece that is still, that is on view in in downtown Los Angeles and has been for a long time. And I guess maybe the way into that is to ask you, who was Biddy Mason?
1: Biddy Mason was a slave who came out from Texas. And supposedly, when she came to the United States, she was supposed to be free. And finally, she had to buy her freedom. She lived right down in the central part of, of Los Angeles, this Maine, I think. And she had she built a, a church, I think the AME Church, Black Church, and the artist Sheila DeBrettville and I were, were selected to do a public art piece that's right in the little plaza there where her home was. And when they were... Excavating that and digging around, they found like a little bottle. So that I used that bottle as part of the the installation that I did there. Biddy Mason was this slave who who moved to Los Angeles, and once she got her freedom, and even before then, she still was very helpful to other blacks that lived here. The piece is called the House of the Helping Hand or the House of the Open Hand. She founded a church. And her home was a place to help slaves or newly freed slaves. And she owned a piece of very valuable property. I think maybe even even her heirs opened a hardware store or something. But on that place, it became the parking lot for the Walter, uh, not Walter, but Ronald Regan building, which is across the street. And they wanted, like in Los Angeles, there's a certain percentage of funding for the Construction that goes to public art. And Sheila de Brettville did a, a wall about Eddie Mason's journey as a slave. And I did a little um, installation. It's like by the elevator that shows a photograph of her on her porch and her home. And then on the other side, it's like the outside of that home with the window as an installation. And looking in the window, you see curtains, you see a picture of her, and you see a bottle that was excavated from the property when they were constructing it. So it's just an homage to Biddy Mason, who was an early, early black settler of Los Angeles.
0: So it's a piece that you all made in in 1989. And as as you mentioned, it includes a window, which we talked about at at the beginning of the show. Was it interesting to you or important to you that after all of those years of using windows taken out of, the context of buildings that to, to make a window that was directly related to a building <laughs> to, yeah, to, to use a window totally in the way that it was intended. It's <laughs> so
1: totally natural because I wanted to do something that related to the work that I was doing. I just didn't want to make a public art piece. And that's why I wanted to make it a, a, an assemblage window that told the story about the woman that had lived on that property many, many years ago.
0: I think also that probably most people today, including most Angelinos today, don't know that there were slaves in Southern California and that Southern California, at least in the state of California, was the part of California that was most Southern and most secessionist in the years, you know, in the late 1850s and, and before the Civil War, that, that the home of Southern sympathizing in the West was Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, it had... It had its trials. I mean, there were even lynchings here. But then, it was also like the, the the influence from Mexico too. That's what really makes it unique. That it was part of Spain as well as part of the the things that the feelings and movements that came out from the south. But the wall that Chile de Bretville designed has that information. It has dates. It has images and things so that tells the history and mine is just like a little slice of life of when she lived in a particular house and a window to that house
0: with with references to both biddy mason and for people who who know your work references to to your work going back 30 years yes so. well betty sar it has been a thrill and a pleasure and a thrill and thank you so much for talking with me
1: well it's been nice talking to you